Recently, God looked down from heaven and he noticed all the evil in the world. He sent an angel down to check it out. When the angel reported in, he said, Yep, 95% of the people are sinful. Only 5% are living right. God was so disappointed. He thought, well, maybe I should get a second opinion. And so he sent another angel down into the world. When this angel reported back, he said, God, the first angel was right. 95% of the people are sinful. Only 5% are good. Well, while God was thinking about it and planning a course of action, he wanted to email all of the folks who were being good. You know, he wanted to encourage them to be good and godly. Do you know what that email said? Do you? Am I the only one that got the email? <laughs> Actually, I didn't get the email either, okay? I mean, the two angels were off in their calculations. For the Bible declares in Psalm 53 verse 3 and again in Romans 3 verse 12, there is none who does good. No, not one. And it's our sin that bars us from God's presence. You see, the Hebrews knew this well. Within Judaism, the religion that they had been raised in, not just anyone could offer a sacrifice. Not just anyone could enter God's presence. Only an elite few. The priests from the tribe of Levi, only they could go before God. You see, this is why everyone needs a priest, a go-between. We need someone who can bridge the gap, who can act on our behalf. Someone who can do our bidding and regain for us God's favor and acceptance. And over the next three chapters, Hebrews 5 through 7, the writer of this book is going to describe for us how the Levitical priests were limited in their ministry. How that these Old Testament priests failed to bring about a total reconciliation between God and man Yet where they failed, Jesus succeeded. For here's his point. Jesus is a better priest than any of those Old Testament priests. Jesus is better. The Jews trusted in a, quote, high priest. But to all who put their trust in Jesus, he is a great high priest. Well, chapter 5 begins, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Did you know that in Vietnam, elephants are considered sacred? Touch an elephant, and it's supposed to bring you good luck. In fact, under most forms of paganism, animals are thought to procure divine help. And yet, according to verse 1, it's not the animals that qualify for priestly service. Nor is it the angels. Neither, neither do angels qualify as priests. Angels follow orders from God, not empathize with man. The angels have never felt our hurts. Though they've observed, they've never participated in God's plan for reconciliation and redemption. You see, neither angels or animals can help in things pertaining to God. Oh, a dog fetches your newspaper at night, perhaps. Your guardian angel keeps you from swerving off the road. But neither your animal or your angel can impact your relationship with God or improve your spiritual status. That's why priests for men are always appointed from men. 
And here's why it's important that priests are human beings. Verse 2. So he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. You see, a priest needs two traits. First is an awareness of human weakness. The angels don't have this. The angels never grow weary. They don't become weak. Thus, they would make lousy priests. You'd get no empathy from a guardian angel if you stumped your toe or broke your leg or ran out of steam. Angels never get tired or hungry or sleepy or weary and well-doing. Their answer for such weakness is to buck up. The angelic instinct is to kick you in the pants when you get tired. He's got no empathy for you. And when we buckle under temptation, it boggles the angels' brains, man. I mean, angels are cold-blooded do-gooders. They don't have any empathy for sin or for somebody rebelling against God. They've seen what happened to Satan when he rebelled against God. See a puny human sin or give in, and they pick up their swords to avenge God's honor. It boggles their brain that God holds judgment at bay and shows mercy to men. But in becoming a man, Jesus became acquainted with human weakness. Jesus got tired, and he got hungry, and he got thirsty, and he went through all of the trials that you go through. Jesus wept, and he hurt. And he grew angry at times, and he got discouraged. In his 30-plus years, he ran the whole gamut of human experience and human emotion. And why did he do it? So that now he can empathize with you and me. He's been where we're at. He understands what we need. Jesus can supply us the solace and the strength that we crave. And then the second trait that a priest needs is an awareness of human sinfulness. Notice verse 3. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. Once a year, the Jewish high priest would enter the Holy of Holies there in the temple, and he would offer a sacrifice that would cover the sins of the nation. But before he ever made that sacrifice for the nation Israel, he first had to offer a sacrifice for himself. His own sin had to be covered first. You see, God never intended for a priest to have a holier-than-thou attitude. The fact that he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins first was a safeguard from him ever becoming self-righteous. All men, even in those linen robes, even with those sacred mitres, were aware of their own sin. The only priest who never sinned was our high priest, Jesus Christ. He was tempted in all manner and yet without sin, the Bible tells us. Jesus was the one perfect man. And yet he was a man nonetheless. And as a man, even our Lord on the cross bore the shame for our sin. At Calvary, our sin was thrust upon his innocent shoulders, the shoulders of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says it plainly. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus felt the alienation that sin causes when he took our sin on his shoulders. He knows firsthand now the horrors of sin and the mercy we need. 
This again makes Jesus the perfect high priest for you and me. Notice verse 4. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. See, a priest has to be a man, but he also has to be appointed by God. God ordained the Old Testament priests from the tribe of Levi. In other words, a priest had to be wearing Levi jeans. He was from the house, or he was from the family of Aaron, and from the tribe of Levi. You remember several times in the Old Testament, individuals tried to assume the role of a priest, and in each case, God brought judgment against them. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, King Saul couldn't wait on Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice, and so he did it himself. And guess what it cost him? His kingdom. You remember in Numbers chapter 16, Korah and his kin, they tried a priestly coup d'etat, and the ground opened up and swallowed the whole bunch of the, of the lot. The whole rebel clan was swallowed up. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, King Uzziah decided that being king wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to be a priest too. And so he usurped the priestly position. And guess what God did? Struck him with leprosy. That's kind of how you know you've crossed God when He strikes you with leprosy. I mean, here's the moral of the stories. Both old priests of old and priests today, or pastors today, they should always be appointed by God. A lot of people running around today who are self-appointed. But God requires for His representatives, for true men of God, to be called by Him. And this was the case with Jesus. Even Jesus didn't assume the role of priest. He was appointed by His Father in heaven. Verse 5 tells us, So also Christ did not glorify Himself to become high priest, but it was He who said to Him, and here the author quotes Psalm 2 verse 7, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. At first, the application of this verse to this argument seems sort of strange to us. What does the birth of Jesus have to do with God appointing Him as high priest? But when you compare Scripture with Scripture, you learn that this quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it doesn't speak of Jesus' birth at all. It actually speaks of His resurrection. If you go back in Acts 13, verse 13, Paul applies... Psalm 2 verse 7, not to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, but to His resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus was begotten, or He began again a glorious new life when He rose from the dead and when He ascended to the right hand of His Father in heaven. It was at that point that God made Jesus our great high priest, that God appointed Him as a priest in the heavenly temple. Today, He ministers there before the Father, interceding for you and me. You do have a friend in high places. And His name is Jesus Christ. Verse 6 is helpful. As He also says in another place, and here He quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now here's a crucial point. Jesus was never a Levitical priest. During his earthly ministry, he never wore a priestly garment. He never slaughtered a Levitical sacrifice or ministered as a priest in the temple at Jerusalem. Jesus was a priest, but not after the order of Levi or after the Old Testament Jewish priest, the priests of Judaism. Rather, he was a priest after a different order of priesthood, 
after the order of a priest named Melchizedek. And we'll read about him back in Genesis. When Abraham came back from conquering the Chaldeans, he came back and he gave a tithe and paid homage to Melchizedek. Jesus was a priest after this order. You see, Levitical priests were temporary and earthly. Jesus was an eternal and heavenly priest. As Psalm 110 puts it, you are a priest forever. Jesus' priesthood never ended. He is still on the throne today, interceding for you and me. Next week in Hebrews chapter 7, we'll learn more about this man Melchizedek. His priesthood and what it means in regards to Jesus. But back to the human requirements here for being a priest. Recalling the earthly ministry of Jesus, we're told, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears. Jesus was well acquainted with heartache and with pain. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in such physical and mental anguish that when he prayed, his sweat had the consistency of great drops of blood. And Jesus prayed to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Now I've heard people suggest that Jesus prayed in the garden to avoid the cross. Let this cup pass from me was a plea to escape. That he was asking the Father to find another way to redeem the world. I don't agree. Throughout his life, from crib to the cross, Jesus' one aim was to die for the sins of mankind. To suggest that he got to the end of his journey and then had second thoughts, to me, is insulting and ridiculous. Beside, the author of Hebrews here suggests that God answered his prayer. Obviously, Jesus wasn't asking to bypass the cross. I believe that Jesus' angst in the garden centered around the hurt and the pain that his disciples would cause him. He knew that they would deny him in a matter of hours, that they would abandon him, that one would betray him. He was being asked to die for brothers who would turn traitor. He was, asked to be, he was asked by God to lay it all down and bear incredible pain for folks who, would, who had boasted their allegiance to him and yet would end up doing him dirty. To me, this is the greatest challenge of the Christian life. Am I willing to love a brother turned traitor? Am I willing to care for someone who double-crossed me, who did me wrong, who treated me dirty? To lay down my life for the person who just stabbed me in the back. A.W. Pink writes this, Our sharpest trials often come from those in whom we have instilled the most trust and in whom we have shown the greatest kindness. Truly, are we willing to love our enemies, even those who betray us? Jesus could have gotten bitter, but in the garden he asked God to take away that cup of resentment, and I believe God answered his prayer. And through it all, we're told that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now this is such a strange thought when we apply it to Jesus Christ. That the Son of God learned obedience? What does that mean? Well, don't misunderstand. Jesus was never disobedient. It's just that in heaven... As equal with God, he never had the opportunity to obey. You don't have to obey when you're the one that's calling the shots, when you're the boss. 
But when Jesus laid aside his heavenly glory, when he became a man and assumed the role of a servant, for the very first time since eternity passed, the Son of God was called on to take orders. Thus Jesus learned obedience. He experienced the rigors and the consequences of obedience firsthand. This is why he can expect the same of us. Verse 9 tells us, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There was a time, I don't know if they do it anymore, but there was a time when Delta Airlines required all of their newly hired executives to first work in the grunt areas of their business. They'd do a stint handling baggage and then ticketing passengers and then cleaning out planes. At least this is what I was told. Before they trusted the big decisions to these people, they first put them in the trenches. They, they were trusted to hand down, before they were trusted to hand down decisions from the top, they first had to learn obedience from those who were at the bottom. And I think this is a good policy. This was the policy of heaven. For Jesus himself experienced being a good servant. Why? So that he could be a good boss. Now you know when a command comes down from Jesus, it's not coming from some bigwig who's oblivious to the challenges you face. Oh no. Before Jesus started giving orders, he learned first how to take them. Today when a command comes down from Jesus, rest assured, it's for your own good. And it comes with his help. And it's always within your capacities to obey. Verse 10 tells us again, Jesus has been called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now often the problem in churches is a dull preacher or maybe a dull sermon. You might be thinking, amen to that. A.T. Robertson once said, One of the proofs for the inspiration of the Bible is that it has withstood so much poor preaching. I agree. I believe a pastor's greatest sin is to make the Bible boring. The Bible is anything but boring. And here's another problem though. Maybe a greater problem. Not dull preaching, but dull hearing. The word translated dull, it means sluggish in the ears. These Hebrews had the attentiveness of a slug. Reminds me of the man who wore a hearing aid for 20 years. Actually, it never really helped him until it was discovered that he'd been wearing the device in the wrong ear. For 20 years, the hearing aid had been muffled or had muffled him from hearing in his good ear and actually made his situation worse. Likewise, there are believers today who have a hearing problem. They're selective listeners. They hear only what they want to hear or what applies to their spouse or what they think their boss or their kids need to hear and never what applies to them. A pastor was once asked if his church needed a death ministry. He responded, sure, I think our whole church needs a death ministry. They just don't seem to hear what I'm saying. Well, these Hebrews, they needed a death ministry. And this spiritual dullness created a sad situation. The author has so many wonderful truths that he wants to share with his readers. 
He says in verse 11 that he has much to say about this priestly ministry of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Jesus is in heaven right now praying for you and I. What an intriguing thought that is. Piques my curiosity. I would love to learn more of such mysteries. But the author of the book says that he can't go on because his readers aren't ready. They're still stuck on the basics. Kind of makes you wonder what mysteries, what insights, what heights of spiritual enlightenment are awaiting just around the corner for you and me. But God refuses to reveal them because we're not listening to what he's already told us. Kind of makes you wonder. Notice verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. I mean, by this time he's saying you should be able to teach the Bible and yet you've yet to master the basics. This phrase, the first principles, literally gets translated the ABCs of Christianity. The Hebrews had yet to learn their ABCs. They weren't even acquainted with the basics. He's saying it's foolish to teach T-ballers pickoff plays when they can't even put the glove on their hand correctly. You've got to learn the basics before you can move on to the deeper stuff. Some of the Hebrews, they should have been teachers by this point. But their spiritual maturity and growth had not measured up to the depth of the teaching they'd already received. And sadly, this still happens. People come to our church and they hear God's word, but they don't apply it to their lives. They want to experience God's blessing. They want to bear spiritual fruit. But it's not happening the way they thought it would. And guess what? They conclude that the problem must be the church. Man, I need another pastor. I'm not growing under that guy. They'll say, we're not getting fed properly. The teaching there is so dull. Which is a possibility. But more often than not, the problem is not dull teaching. It's dull listening. We need to first consider, is the problem us? Some people listen with an ear toward critiquing the delivery rather than a desire to apply the truth. The writer here, he continues to mourn the immaturity of his readers. He says, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. I mean, milk is for babies, for people with no teeth. Now, it may be cute to see a little infant there sucking on a bottle. But it would be disgusting to see a college freshman walking around sucking on a baby bottle, would it not? And it's equally disturbing to see Christians who've been in the faith for years, who should be teachers, and yet they're still struggling with the basics. At some point, you have to take responsibility for your own spiritual maturity. You can't just blame your stunted growth on someone else. Verse 13 tells us, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Here we're told how to move out of babydom. How to move from milk to meat. You see, it takes more than just 
adding spiritual calories, just gaining more knowledge. No, you have to exercise what you know in order to build more muscle. Notice he says, it's by reason of use. That's how you build up a faith. That's how you build backbone and grow strong in your faith. Spiritual maturity comes by applying what you already know. This week I saw an NBC News article entitled, Big Baby Boom. Supersized deliveries have doctors worried. I would imagine mothers worried too, or soon to be mothers worried. Apparently over the last decade, there's been a spike in developed countries of the birth of big babies. This year, a Pennsylvania woman had a 13-pound, 12-ounce little girl. A German baby weighed in at 13 and a half pounds. How about that little cute thing? California saw a 13-pound, 10-ounce baby girl. And in March, a British mom delivered little George. Little George, who weighed in at 15 pounds and 7 ounces. They took back his infant clothes and they brought him home in PJs meant for a six-month-old. At six weeks, little George was 26 inches long. Today, hospitals are seeing a rash of big babies, but so are churches. We've got bloated believers with lots of fat. They know a lot, but they need to start applying what they know. Turn it into muscle. Stop being a big baby. We all need to grow up in Christ. We need to gain some maturity. We need to build some muscle. Chapter 6 begins, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, these spiritual fundamentals, these ABCs, he wants to move on to more mature matters. He says, Let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He says, before we move on, here are the fundamental principles. And I think it's interesting to note these basic. What are the basics in the Christian life? Well, here we have them. He sets them out in three pairs. First, he says, this is one of the basics of the faith, repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. See, the first two basic truths of Christian discipleship, they relate to our salvation, to our standing with God, repentance from dead works and faith to God. Here's how we become Christians. Here's how you become right with God. You realize that your best works are as filthy rags in God's eyes. That they're dead works. That no one comes to God by their own effort or their own merit. That salvation is a gift from God by grace through faith. It's repentance from dead works and faith toward God. The second set of principles that he gives, he speaks of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands. Now this second pair of basic Christian truths concerns the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice Paul says, baptisms, plural. I think we'll find three baptisms spoken of in the New Testament. First, there is the baptism into the body of Christ. This is what happens when we get saved. This is the spiritual infusion. 
that takes place where the Holy Spirit plants us into the body of Christ. He comes, he sparks new life in us. We are born again into the family of God. We are baptized into the body of Christ. That's baptism number one. The second baptism is water baptism. We usually do this on a Sunday morning after church and we welcome new members into the body of Christ through water baptism. And then the third baptism, this is what we find in the early chapters of the book of Acts. It's the baptism or the engulfing or the anointing, that point in time filling with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit comes upon our lives and gives us boldness. This too is one of the baptisms spoken in the New Testament. So we need to experience all three baptisms. We need to be baptized into the body of Christ. We need to be water baptized as a witness to the world. And we need to be filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit with power and with boldness. And then there's also the laying on of hands by church members. This also relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. In the early church, when a person was appointed by the Holy Spirit to an office in the church or to a mission from the church, it was usually confirmed by the laying on of hands. We often do this in our prayer circles. You know, we'll gather together and we'll lay our hands on someone else. And it's as if, you know, we're giving tangible expression to our faith that we're imparting a blessing to this person who's going out and doing a work for God. Often when the spiritual gifts are received, it sometimes comes through the laying on of hands. God uses the touch of holy hands to impart spiritual blessing and dynamic. And then the third pair of basic doctrines deal with the end times. He says, of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Did you know that one day the bodies of both the righteous and the wicked will be resurrected, immortal, eternal, Every human being is going to live forever. But then comes the judgment. Will you be assigned to heaven? Or will you be assigned to hell? That depends on the first set of pairs. Did you repent from your dead works and put your faith in God? Or did you trust in yourself? Well, if you don't have a handle on these three areas of Christianity, salvation, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the final judgment, then you've got some catch-up work to do. These are the basics. It's time for some remedial study if you don't have a good handle on these issues. God has more to reveal to us, and He will, but first we need to grasp the basics. Now notice again the plea in verse 1. Let us go on. We, that's the theme here. We need to go on in our faith. Faith is not a one-time proposition. You persevere in your faith. You don't just have faith and then that's it. You go on and on and then on in your faith. Faith is a continual thing. It's something in which we persevere. And the writer of Hebrews is concerned about those who are stuck or who are stunted in their faith, who are not moving on. And he issues a warning to them in verse 4. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good words of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Wow. That's a mouthful. 
Understand, the point of this passage is don't fall away. That we need to move on. That we need to press on. That we need to continue in our faith. But in making this point, other questions get raised. First, is it possible for a true Christian to fall away from the faith and forfeit or lose their salvation? Now, some say no. And they'll skirt around verses 4 and 5 by suggesting that these descriptions don't really apply to legitimate Christian conversion. Hey, these people just flirted with the Holy Spirit. They never really married the Holy Spirit. They never really were, the Holy Spirit was part of them. That never really happened. They just kind of flirted with it. Although that's not what it says. It does say partakers of the Holy Spirit. Or they, oh, they tasted the heavenly gift maybe, but... You know, they just didn't swallow. They kind of rolled it around in their mouth. But they never really swallowed it. Sounds like Bill Clinton. I smoked, but I didn't inhale. But again, that's not what's really said here, is it? It says they've tasted the good Word of God. They've tasted these things. I I think these these arguments kind of deny the obvious. Commentator Warren Wiersbe, he's a staunch, once saved, always saved advocate. Yet he concedes this. To suggest the phrase, partakers of the Holy Spirit, means they only went along with the Spirit to a certain extent is to ignore the meaning of the verb. It means to become sharers. I have concluded that the people addressed here were true believers, not mere professors. It's interesting, too, that in other passages, these same terms are clearly used to denote bona fide believers. Check out Hebrews 3 verse 1 and Chapter 3, verse 14, the partakers there are obviously Christians. In fact, this whole letter was written to believers. That's the point. There's no doubt in my mind that this passage was a warning to true Christians that if they fall away from their faith, if they renounce their faith in Christ and turn their back on His provision, they'll no longer be saved. That's the clear meaning of the text. Now don't misunderstand, I am not saying that a believer can lose their salvation by anything they do or don't do. Works, performance, doesn't gain for us salvation and neither can it cause us to lose our salvation. Salvation is a matter of grace through faith. But if you don't cultivate your faith, that faith can atrophy and die. Of course, this raises a second question. If this passage teaches us that we can lose our salvation, doesn't it also teach us that once it's lost, it can never be retrieved? Again, reading the passage straight through, it says, For it is possible if they fall away, or I'm sorry, for it is impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, first, Let's remember that there's a host of biblical passages that teach us that as long as a wayward soul has a last breath, hope is never lost. That's something taught in the Scriptures. One example is the prodigal son. You remember he was a member of the father's family before he fell away. And when he repented and returned, he was warmly welcomed back again. That's an important story. 
Romans chapter 11, verse 23 says of the Jews who were cut off of the vine. It says, they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Notice those words. God is able to graft them in again. They had it. They lost it. But then they got it back. When they repented of their sin and returned to faith in Christ. It's possible. I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying here that if a person falls away from their faith, while he's in that fallen state, it's impossible to renew him then to repentance. But the passage doesn't say what happens if he returns. The rest of the scriptures attest that if he does return, God will graciously renew him to repentance, and once again, he'll become a recipient of the mercies and the blessings and the favor of God. In fact, the New International Version, it gives an alternate reading for verse 6. Rather than since they crucify again, it reads while they are crucifying. In other words, while their back is turned to Jesus, it's impossible to be renewed to faith. Remember these Hebrew believers, they were being tempted to return to the religious practices of Judaism. That, that was the big deal for them. Here he's saying, though, if you turn your back on Jesus and you go back to the Jewish priests, it's impossible for you to be saved. How can it be possible when you've turned your back on God's only provision for sin? But that doesn't mean that if they renew their faith and they come back to Jesus and they embrace Him as their priest and Him as their sacrifice and Him as their sole provision for sin, that God won't see to it that they receive his blessing and his favor and his acceptance and they will be saved. The problem though is you can't have it both ways. You can't turn your back on Jesus and still expect to be saved. How can you? When he's God's only provision for sin. You can't trust in the blood of animals as payment for sin and then in the blood of Christ at the same time. That's basically what he's saying. Think of it this way. If I have tickets to the Braves game, and I give them away to Joe Bagwell, which I probably would never do, but in case I did. I gave Joe the ticket. I can't go to the game. I've given my tickets away. I can't go to the game now. As long as I don't have a ticket, there's no hope for me getting into the game. You've got to have a ticket to get into the game. But that doesn't mean I can't go back to the box office and buy some new tickets. I can't. As long as tickets are still available. And I got good news for you. Heaven's not yet full. There's tickets still available. Verse 7 tells us, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Like the rain, God's blessing comes upon all of us. It's what we do with that rain that matters. If we bear fruit, we'll be blessed. If we bear thorns, we'll be cursed. You see, our destiny is shaped by our response to God. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He's warned them, but he has high hopes that they'll continue in their faith, that they'll persevere. And if they do, they'll receive a reward for their love and kindness. He says, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. 
You see, those who fall away never receive the reward. The reward that they would have received had they persevered. This is why there are many blessings for continuing in your faith. Verse 11, For we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I love this verse. Here is how you hold on. Here is how you continue. Realize there's always a lapse in time between the giving of a promise and between the fulfilling of that promise. That's why it takes not just faith, not just patience, but it takes faith and patience to inherit the promises. You see, some folks, they start out with faith, but they lack patience, and when that gap of time is too long, they run out of patience and they fall away. As a result, their faith flames out and it dies. Whereas other folks will wait on God, but they never take Him at His word. They never step out in faith. They're sort of in a perpetual holding pattern. If they're going to land the promise, they need to exercise their faith. That's why it's the combination of both faith and patience that inherits God's promises. Verse 13 tells us, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Now God's promise to Abraham is significant to us, since it's the seed from which our salvation flows. Messiah, Jesus Christ, was a member of Abraham's family, and thus those of us who are saved through Jesus are blessed through Abraham. Now God knew His promise to Abraham had incredibly far-reaching ramifications, and that's why after making the promise, God confirmed it to Abraham by the swearing of an oath. You've got to understand, back in ancient times, an oath was the equivalent of signing a contract. The oath assured the party's accountability. And that's why a man always swore by someone greater than himself, usually by the priest or by the king. In essence, he was saying that if I fail to uphold my end of the deal, then I'm asking the authority that I have invoked in order to come and make me compliant and make me accountable. Thus, when God promised blessing to Abraham, he also took an oath. He wanted to guarantee his promise. And yet no one's greater than God. Who is God going to swear by to confirm his promise? And so he swore by himself. Verse 17 adds, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability or the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, both his promise, his word, and now his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Now, in other words, God wanted to make sure that the promise of salvation was so certain that we could take it to the bank. And so he did it by both promising it and then by confirming it with an oath by two immutable witnesses. 
No one in all of human history has ever made a promise more secure than the promise God has made concerning your salvation. God's willingness to save you and me is sealed by two immutable, unchangeable things. His word and his oath. God cannot lie. Thus, his word should be enough for us to trust him for all eternity. But God puts a guarantee on top of the guarantee. He also takes an oath. He swears by himself. You see, Abraham had a long wait for the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to him. You remember his son Isaac was born 25 years after the promise was first given. But Abraham's weight was nothing compared to the recipients of God's salvation, you and I. For the Old Testament Jews and for us Gentiles who believe, we have waited 2,000 years from God's promise to Abraham to the fulfillment of the Messiah. God knew that there would be a long wait, that there's a lapse of time between when the promise is given and when the promise is fulfilled. And that's why he wanted to bolster his people's faith with an oath. Thus he sealed his promise with an oath he swore by himself. It's sort of like playing cards with your friends. You're playing cards and somebody wins the trick. But your dumb partner, he throws out a card to win the trick twice. Have you ever seen this happen? He throws out a trump card too. And so what do you do? You double win it. And you say, oh man, that was smart. Sure, you double won the trick. Well, faith faith is only as good as its object. And God here is giving us double assurance. He's saying your salvation has been double won. He's given us both his promise and his oath. It's interesting I had to resort to a card illustration in order to hammer that point home. But just what happened. And then in verse 18, we who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now here's a reference to another ancient Hebrew custom, the cities of refuge. This is all laid out for you in Numbers chapter 35 if you want to go back and read it. But here's what happened in ancient Israel. If you accidentally took the life of another person, you would flee to a designated city. In other words, a city of refuge. And there the elders of the city, they would judge your case. And if they found no malice in your actions, then you could remain under the city's protection. As long as you remained within the city walls then the relatives of the deceased couldn't take vengeance on their fallen family member. You were protected as long as you were in the city. But if you left those city walls, you were on your own. You were free game for those folks that wanted to avenge their relatives' blood. You were finally freed completely from all retribution upon the death of the high priest. His death ended the statute of limitations, you might say, and you could no longer be punished. And this, of course, is all a picture of our Lord Jesus, our hope in Christ. For Jesus is our city of refuge. As long as we're in Christ, as long as we put our faith in Him, we're protected from the penalties of sin. But if we fall away from our faith, if we leave the confines of Christ, then we're on our own. 
And since our high priest has already died and rose from the dead, then as long as we continue in Christ, then we can never be prosecuted for our sins. Do you understand that? As long as you put faith in Jesus, your sins are covered, past, present, future. You can never be prosecuted for those sins. Man, I am so glad. For the believer in Jesus, the statute of limitations on sin is over. And I am so thankful. Verse 19 tells us, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever. Did you know that one of the earliest symbols of Christianity was a boat anchor? You think of a cross and maybe the star Bethlehem, but it was actually a boat anchor. Archaeologists have found over 60 carvings of anchors on the walls of Rome's catacombs. And if you have faith in Christ, understand you are tied to an anchor. Faith is like a cord that's tied to an anchor. And understand, our anchor isn't just thrown into the depths of the ocean. No, instead, Jesus has ascended upward into the heights of the heaven. When God threw out the anchor, it went upward toward heaven, into the heavenly temple. At his ascension, our anchor rose from the Mount of Olives, ascended into the clouds, flew through heaven's doors, into God's throne room, where it is now hooked onto the horns of the mercy seat. It caught And it held tight. And today, Jesus is at God's throne interceding for us. Again, that means that you have a friend in high places. In a world of sudden and often violent storms, isn't it comforting to know we have an anchor? That we are tied off on a rock? Oh, we might pitch, we might roll, we might go up and down, but we're tied off on that rock. We are secure. Something greater than ourselves holds us. Jesus is our anchor. And that's why we should continue on with Jesus. No drawing back. Don't you dare cut the tie of faith. Do so and you'll drift. I like what Daniel Towner wrote. I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between Through the storms I safely ride till the turning of the tide. And it holds. My anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale. On my bow so small and frail. By His grace I shall not not fail. For my anchor holds. My anchor holds. And your anchor holds too, my friend. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we have a high priest our Lord Jesus, who is better than the sons of Aaron, the Levitical priests, the priests of Judaism. In fact, the last verse here in chapter 6 tells us that our eternal high priest is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that is the tip of a fascinating iceberg. There's some wonderful truths associated with the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 is all about a superior priesthood of this mysterious, intriguing character named Melchizedek. But Melchizedek is going to have to wait till next week. So there we have Hebrews chapters 5 and 6.